We're continuing together in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 8, and we're going to consider verses 30 and 36. And it seems to you we've been for a while in this chapter. Um, We have been for a while in this chapter. Uh, There are so many goodies in this chapter, I feel like I'm going too fast. Uh, And this is is a, a rich chapter in so many ways. And so I encourage you, one of the things I do each show, frequently during the week as I'm uh, studying. I just go and read through the whole chapter. There are so many riches of Christ revealed, and it it keeps getting better uh, as we will continue. But the text before us today is uh, chapter uh, uh, verses 30 to 36. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In verses uh, 30 to 32, he speaks, if you will, of the path to freedom. Verse 30, he says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. We closed last time. We're still in the section related to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or you might hear it, the Feast of Sukkot. This is the the, uh, feast where they celebrated by building little booths that they lived in for a week. That has finished, but it's, it's still kind of, if you will, echoing. Most people have gone home, and so these tend to be the more local Israelites or those who decided to stay for a little longer. But he's there in the temple teaching them. He has he's spoken of himself and, and as they did the, the libration, the pouring out of water, he said, come to me and I'll give you water of life. As those incredible um, lampstands gave out light that it says it was so bright that it, it flooded the courtyards of Jerusalem at night. He said, I'm the light of the world. And, and, and here he's going to say that he is indeed the one who 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 is the truth, and he is the one who is the one who gives freedom. We, we actually gave, covered verse 30 briefly last week, but I, I, it really fits into this passage as well. We're told that as he spoke and taught these things, many believed in him. I explained last time, I don't think that's saving faith, and this passage will make it clearer. But what that means is, as he was teaching, many were persuaded, convinced, not to the point of trusting in him as Savior, but in believing what he's saying is right, what he's saying is true. Maybe without even fully grasping what that meant. We can see in Jesus' response, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed, those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, we've been saying when he, when he refers to the Jews, when John refers to the Jews, 
Uh, they're all Jews. This is Israel. And, and, well, I mean, there might be Gentiles here and there, and I don't know there'd be many Samaritans in the temple. But when he refers to the Jews, that's John's way typically of speaking of the Jewish leadership. They represent the Jewish nation, but this might be the people in the Sanhedrin, the leading Pharisees and Sadducees. And so when he's speaking here of the Jews who believe, so what that's telling us is even some of the leadership were being persuaded by his words. But you'll notice that Jesus even challenges them in that and, and explains to them what true belief looks like. And so these, uh, he makes it clear, they're believing, but they're not believers. So they're persuaded that much of what he's saying is right. True, but they're not trusting him as Savior. They're not following him as their Lord. He explains the difference between their belief and the belief to which he's calling them. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. By the way, I have to comment just passing. You know, at Resurrection Sunday, around the season of Easter, we like to follow the tradition that's been in the church for centuries. And we say, he is risen. And the answer is, he is risen indeed. Well, this is the same word used in that uh, traditional uh, greeting. And he is risen truly. He is risen indeed. And he is saying, you will be my disciples truly. You will be my disciples indeed. So the fact that you are going along with the ideas doesn't mean that you're really following me, that you're truly my disciples. That's what he's saying. I suppose it might be in the political realm. You might be uh, persuaded by um, maybe this a particular political party and say, yeah, yeah, that represents me. Well, are you of that party? No, no, no. I just, But I agree with some of the ideas. And so they were used to the idea that they would have one rabbi coming and they would say, you know, he's, he's got some good points there. And another rabbi would come along and say, and he has some good points there, but they're not really following. They're not uh, becoming his disciple. And so, yes, they were saying, well, Jesus is making some good points. Maybe he was nodding as they were speaking. And so Jesus is, it quickly says, um, your belief is not belief. But he says, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples. Now that word abide, it will come up later, and I'm not even going to mention, but if you were to skip, perhaps you're aware when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, and he'll talk about abiding in him. That's a major theme in chapter 15. I'm not even going to go there because sometime in the next century we're going to be in chapter 15. <laughs> but, but back in verse 56 of chapter 6, Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So that concept of um, spiritual communion and union over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So that's talking, these are talking about saving faith, the one that takes by faith Jesus into their life, and he uses the picture of eating. And again, we talked about the fact you can have bread on the table, you can smell it and say, oh, that's wonderful, that's, that's my favorite bread. But until you eat it, it really doesn't do you any good at all. And so Jesus uses that as a picture. It's not just knowing about me, but it's receiving me into your life and heart. 
And so he uses a picture of, of eating as a picture of that. But notice, by the way, all the passages I've mentioned, John 15, 1 John 4, John chapter 6, here in chapter 8. John likes that word abide, doesn't he? I think that's a key theme that he wants us to, to notice. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to agree with his teachings, to approve of them. Now, there are some that will hear the teachings of Jesus and frankly say, eh, I don't really, I don't buy it. I don't agree with him. But many will say, well, I, I, I believe in Jesus' teachings. Some of those you can ask them, and, say, and what does he teach? Um... Have you read anything uh, that describes his teachings? Um, but I know I agree with him. and He's good. <laughs> and so what he's talking about, there's a difference between uh, acknowledging, maybe even being aware of, and kind of agreeing with, because many will say that. Uh, we've been talking in our adult Sunday school class, we're talking we're, um, history of Christianity in America. And we're living in an age in the Christianity in America, it's becoming increasingly a disappearing act. But if you go back to maybe the 1950s, when the cleavers were, were active on their street, um, most every American would tell you, unless they were Jewish, well, of course I'm a Christian, and many Americans would go to church. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that though that they and they might even say, well, of course I believe in Jesus. And of course I believe in Jesus. I believe his words. But that was maybe more of a social belief rather than a heart embracing of Christ. And that's what Jesus is addressing. I'm, not, I'm glad you're agreeing with my rabbinic teaching here today. That's not what I'm looking for, he was telling them. I'm calling for disciples who are followers. He's not looking for a, a fickle fascination or sermon sippers. He's calling for life commitment. To be a disciple of the master is to embrace his teachings as truth, to be obeyed and followed. He's asking for commitment. But then he tells them, what will happen with that? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's calling for a surrender to him, a commitment to him, a following of him. And so a disciple, if you listen to that word disciple, it has the word discipline in it. So it's not just someone who is kind of a, a fan who likes to listen to him, but a follower. And a follower who obeys his teaching. What does he say over in Matthew in the Great Commitment? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That word obey is almost as bad as the word submit. As soon as you say it, some people start feeling uncomfortable and Checking where are those exit signs and, you know, the idea of having to submit, obey Christ. It sounds so confining, but notice what he says. You shall know the truth when you obey him and it shall make you free. Obedience to Christ is liberating. Those words 
liberty and obedience almost seem contradictory to us. But what he's saying is that's the path to true liberty, true freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Have you ever heard that expression? I don't, won't give you the list, but there's lots of universities that, that have that you know, as a logo uh, for their, their school. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Maybe when they founded the school, they meant the gospel. But nowadays, uh, either they're embarrassed by the fact it's there, or they forgot it's there, or they think, yeah, you shall know the truth. You know, the better you understand physics, the freer you will be. Now, I think, especially think of my alma mater, Berkeley, over Sather Gate. Now, I should tell you, Berkeley, years back, and I was embarrassed by what they did, they were not giving credit to Christian high schoolers who studied textbooks that, that quoted scripture. So if your Christian textbook, your, your science textbook, quoted the Bible, it therefore was no longer a valid science class. Fascinating thought. Because on Sather Gate, which is the gate that's the entrance to the university, right over it in Latin is a quote of Genesis, let there be light. So the university, as you enter, quotes the scripture. Does that invalidate everything they teach? You know, it's just one of those disconnects here. And so uh, when we're talking, though, about you shall know the truth, we're not talking sociology, history, science. He's talking about what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, God's truth, eternal truth, not just philosophical ideas. But biblical and salvation truth. You shall know the truth. And that truth will liberate you. The truth that is only known in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but does the name Phillips Brooks sound at all familiar to you? This isn't the right time of year to ask you that question. Because in just a couple of months, we'll be singing his song. O little town of Bethlehem. But here's what he said, not in that song. God frees our souls not from service, not from duty, but into service and into duty. And he who mistakes the purpose of his freedom mistakes the character of his freedom. He who thinks that he's being released from the work and not set free in order that he may accomplish the work mistakes the condition into which his soul is invited to enter. That's, that's maybe a, a stronger, older way of expressing it, but what he's saying is true freedom is in service. True freedom and liberty is in labor. That's so contrary to our way of thinking. Our way of thinking in our culture today is liberty means I am not responsible to anybody. I obey, I don't obey anyone. I live for myself. I indulge myself. I, I, I flee restriction. That's not God's sense of freedom. God's sense of freedom is freedom to righteousness. And from the bondage of sin. Um, if I can read a, a, a expression of, of freedom in a political sense from an earlier theologian. 
it still applies to spiritual freedom. The theologians Ronald Reagan, he said this, freedom is something that cannot be passed on in the bloodstream or genetically. And it's never more than one generation away from extinction. Every generation has to learn how to protect and defend it or it's gone and gone for a long, long time. Well, he was speaking of, of, of political liberty, but that's also true of spiritual liberty. Spiritual liberty is not something you inherit. Now, spiritual freedom is not a genetic thing. It's not passed down. It's a personal, individual decision to trust in Christ as Savior. Our J.C. Rao put it this way. The spirit, this freedom can only mean spiritual freedom, freedom from the guilt, burden, and dominion of sin. Well, he goes on to express it. By, by answering their challenge. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say to us, you'll, make, you'll be made free? What are you talking about? We've never been in bondage. We're Abraham's descendants. Every time I read that, I think, have they forgotten their history? Never been in bondage. Let's see, well, there was the 400 years in Egypt, slaves. And then when they came back into the land, eventually we won't go through, well, the period of judges. There's the, what, the Midianites, the, the Philistines, and others. And then later on, there's Assyria that came in and just took, took the northern ten tribes off into captivity and, and greatly uh, reduced Judah. So there's the Egyptians, there's the Midianites, the Philistines, the Assyrians. The, Philistine, the Syrians were conquered by the Babylonians who finished conquering Israel. So they went into bondage to the Babylonians. Then the Persians conquered them, and so they were enslaved to the Persians. And then the Greeks conquered the, conquered the Persians, and so they were enslaved to the Greeks. And then the Romans conquered the Greeks. And at the time this is being written, they're all in bondage to the Romans. Not in bondage. One of the rules of the Romans were... A Roman soldier carrying his, back, his, his sack, his backpack, at any moment could take his, pack, his burden, take any person around him and say, here, you carry this for a mile. Now that was the limit that was put on the Roman soldiers. You could only make a citizen or whatever, one of the local inhabitants, you could make him carry your pack for a mile. Of course, he'd, go, he'd probably go a mile, look for someone else. You know, that would be probably a lot of military guys would think, that'd be great. I, mean, <laughs> I could just have someone else carry my pack for most of the way. That's bondage. You could be exhausted coming in from the field, utterly dead tired. A Roman soldier says, you, come here, take my pack. Come with me for a mile. That's called slavery. So they're telling Jesus, what are you talking about? You're going to make us free. We've never been in bondage. So I don't know that they're talking about political bondage like that or or if they really are thinking maybe, well, our, our spiritual heritage, we're descendants of Abraham. We are free. We're above, no matter who controls us politically, we're still free in heart. Maybe that's what they're thinking. But, so maybe he has to explain to them, what do you mean by freedom? They can't be thinking political. They're not that ignorant. Like I said, just look around. 
Everywhere you go, it's Roman oppression. Jesus answered them and said in verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Let me tell you, you know, they're saying, what do you mean bondage? And he says, I'll tell you what I mean by bondage. The bondage to sin. Now that word, by the way, commits, is, um, I need to explain, that's one of those words that uh, we, we think of the word commit. It's a one-time action. But this, this is a, it's in the present continuing sense. The one who continues in sin. The one who continually does sin is a slave to that sin. So he's not talking about the fact of the, the sin here and the sin there. The incidental sins. For, for that's something that's a part of our experience, unfortunately, until heaven. I wonder how long it'll take us in eternity before we forget what it's like to sin. I'm always, I can't wait to have a mind that is utterly cleansed and free where never again will you have a sinful, selfish, angry thought. Can you imagine that? And that's instantaneous. It's not like a slow slough off. But we're not here to talk about heaven. But, but the point is, he's not talking about the sin here, the sin there. He's talking about the person whose who's practice, whose character. Who's, is, he said, you think you're free? That you can continue in any sin you want? That's true bondage. That's true slavery. He's talking about spiritual slavery. Sad fact is, so many today think, what is freedom? It's the freedom to sin. It's the freedom to be unrestricted by morality, righteousness, or truth, or goodness, or even kindness. I'll probably say this again in our prophetic update, but... It wasn't that long ago where one of the theme phrases you heard around again and again was random acts of kindness. That might be you're, you're buying a coffee and you just randomly buy a cup of coffee for the stranger behind you. Random acts of kindness. Now I'd have to say when I look at the news today, it's random acts of violence. I mean, people, literally, people... Well, the most recent thing I saw, someone was just going down the street. There was a fella, you know, eating by himself at, an outs- at a little diner. He's outside at the table, apparently looking at his phone. And some guy walked by, took up the table, the chair across from him, and leveled him. Didn't know him. And then just kept walking. Ran- just, just random acts of violence. And, 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 and I guess many would say, see how free we are? We are unrestricted by law by morality, by Christ. And he's saying, that's not freedom. That's slavery. That's bondage. You're enslaved to sin. And frankly, sin is a much more vicious and cruel taskmaster than any Egyptian or Roman or anyone else ever was. D.A. Carson said this, people do not drift Toward holiness. Have you ever noticed that? People do not drift toward holiness apart from grace driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. And Jesus is talking to people who think in that way we're free. 
And he's saying, oh, no, you're not. We live in a culture that increasingly is declaring themselves to be free. And Jesus would say, you have no idea how enslaved you are. And he speaks to them and says the, 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 the significance of that. A slave does not abide, abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. You see, a slave for a while may actually live in, live in a, a pretty nice place. He may live in a mansion. Okay, back corner that's maybe not as well appointed as some of the rest. But he might actually live in a, in a grand home. But it's not his home. He's not going to be there forever. Where the son he inherits it. He inherits it. You're aware the queen recently went into the presence of the Lord. I say that because everything I keep reading, uh, she, she really treasured her faith in Christ. Um, one of the things she did as an act of kindness, one of her servants in the passing of the queen, that meant she could be put out on the street. Your job's done, you're gone. So the queen just... And as part of her estate, gave her a house. So she may not continue in the queen's house, but she gets a house. But that's not the way of the slave. You have no, you have no claim. If you're a son, you, it's all yours. It's all yours. And so he's saying this, the, the, the slave may think he's free and may enjoy his certain benefits, but they'll come crashing to an end and he will have nothing, nothing. So the Jews in his audience were proud of their heritage, their connection uh, through Abraham to the promises they claimed. And he puts it in perspective. Family heritage, the slaves have no part in it. They may enjoy some of the benefits of the family's blessings. But it's not really that they're their blessings. You may be enjoying the benefits of the family of Abraham, but unless you trust in the God of Abraham, you have no part in the in actual ownership in those benefits. The, the blessings of Abraham's faith were, for, were ultimately for those who share in his faith. Not just acknowledging you know, God, as, you know, the Lord God, as God, as they're kind of the that's that's who we worship in our family because that's that's our heritage, he's our he's our God, no no, trusting in him, knowing him, walking with him, loving him without reservation. What did God say? The, how did Jesus describe? What's the chief commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to be a child of God. But when you just give him token acknowledgement and, and, and enjoy the benefits of being in, uh, 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 related to the family, he said, no, you're a slave. You have no claim on the inheritance. Many claim in our country to be Christian. That's kind of a, a spiritual heritage. You might ask them, what do they mean by that? Well, they usually say, I'm American. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I'm an American. I'm, I'm not a Jew, and I'm not a Muslim, so I'm a Christian. 
Many people look at that. Maybe people look at that and say, and that's one of the things when I've done some of this international teaching and you realize they often, you know, well, well Christian, America is Christian. And that's kind of tragic because they look at the stuff that comes out of Hollywood and they look at the behavior of some of our leaders and say, that must be Christian behavior. Reminds me of the Christmas Eve that I was at uh, the Church of the Nativity in, in Bethlehem. And... Um, you know, lots of people was crowded and all this sort of thing. Suddenly, this fight broke out next to me in the crowd. And, you know, they kind of warn you when you're overseas in places, you don't, you, want, you don't want to get in the middle of something. So I was kind of watching to see, is this going to turn into something? But there was this quick fight, and it got a little violent for a while, and then it dissipated. And there was all kinds of chatter going on that I couldn't understand. So I was asking, what, what just happened? You know, here we are watching the, the, the church service and the church of the nativity, and all of a sudden this fight breaks out, and... Apparently some fella had acted rudely towards another fella's girlfriend. And then it was explained to me, so he must be a Christian. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, he was drunk. Muslims don't drink, so he's a Christian. And I thought, great. (laughs) So in Israel, if you're not Jewish and you get drunk, you must be a Christian. You see how how distorted the definition gets. I thought, we've got our work to do over here. And when I lived there for a year, I was constantly trying to explain, no, no, Hitler is not Christian. Let me talk to you about what it means to really be a Christian, to be born again. And so he's saying, okay, yeah, 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 you're, you're genetically from Abraham. But you don't share the faith of Abraham. You may share some of his DNA, But unless you share in his faith, you are not a a child of Abraham and a child of Abraham's God. The way I often like to express it is, God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. He then talks in verse 36 about true freedom. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be truly free, free indeed. That is such a, a blessed promise, such a, such a wonderful statement. He's speaking to the Israelites, and their great celebration at Passover is God delivered them from the bondage of the Egypts. Many of their hymns and the Psalms celebrate their deliverance from bondage in Babylon. Oh, how Israel celebrated that they were delivered from the bondage of the Holocaust. Back in Egypt, God delivered them by sending a deliverer named Moses. Remember, he had such a struggle with that. Who am I? But really, God delivered by sending Moses. And so, in the same way, God delivers from the bondage of sin by sending not just a messenger this time, but by sending his own son. That's rather interesting that the name Moses in, in Egyptian means son. And now God sends his ultimate son to be his ultimate deliverer from the, the ultimate slavery. And those who are rescued from spiritual slavery must do so through trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you will, and here's the interesting thing, when, when Moses came to deliver the people, what did he say? I'm going to liberate you 
by telling you what you must do. First, select a lamb. Sacrifice it. Put its blood on your doorposts. Stay inside and the firstborn will be spared. Then, as soon as that's over and when we put out the call, everybody bring your stuff and we're going into the wilderness. Follow me. And so what he was basically saying is following the Savior Moses meant complete obedience to what he told them. Or they would go back into bondage in Egypt and perish. What does it mean to trust in Jesus Christ? Receiving his word and yielding to it. Following him in obedience. That's saving faith. Lasting true freedom. What does that mean? Politicians come and go. Nations rise and fall. But Christ alone offers us eternal, true freedom. Freedom of the soul. We as a nation may have some political freedoms. And yet be in bondage to sin and other things. Well, a lot of talks in our, in our days about rights and liberties, freedom. Again, most people, when they say that, they're thinking political freedom, freedom from restriction, freedom from bondage. Next week is the life chain. And, and one of the issues we hear about that is the, way, the, the opposite of, of, of valuing the unborn life is they say, we want freedom. Freedom to control our own body. The struggle there is there's actually two bodies. And there's actually two people. And in talking about the freedom of the woman, they totally obliterate the freedom of the unborn child to live and bear the image of God. And so one is sacrificed for the freedom of the other. That's not freedom. And that's not freedom. That national tragedy is a picture of spiritual blindness that Jesus is addressing. Our nation is spiritually blind. We're calling bad good. We're calling the lie truth. And we call what we call freedom is, is really terribly is terrible bondage. In our land, chemical addiction is, is epidemic. Sin addiction is epidemic. Soul enslavement is the national disease. And Christ said, what did he say? If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. True liberty is not license to, for self and sin. It's freedom to serve and glorify Christ. This is what Edmund Burke said. Men are qualified for civil liberty in, exactly, in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains on their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there is without. 
So if you will not regulate your heart, then your body must be regulated. No, it's, if we want true freedom from government oppression, then you must govern your heart. He said, it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. That's what so much of what's going on. That was 300 years ago. And that's even truer today. People thinking their freedom is they are not restricted by truth and righteousness. But Christ said that he would give us a freedom that will be true freedom, soul freedom, eternal freedom. I have to ask that of you. Are you making the mistake that they were making in the temple, those Jews that surrounded Jesus? They would all claim to be Jews. They would all claim to be faithful descendants of Abraham and claimed, his, claimed the benefits of being his descendant, but without actually knowing the God of Abraham. You've heard the old thing, it's, it's you know, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Or as uh, Corey Ten Boom's father would tell her, uh, being a, 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 a cookie in a, a mouse in a cookie jar is no more a cookie than, a, than an unbeliever in a church. It's not where you sit. It's not the label you claim. It's a heart commitment to Jesus Christ. It's a surrender. It, it's a surrender to freedom because when we surrender to Jesus Christ, then we're free indeed. Don't be satisfied with the label. Don't be satisfied with agreeing, like some of these sitting around Jesus. Yep, yep, that's true, that's true. Turn to Christ and embrace him as Savior. As he used the language, it's like eating, it's like drinking. It's receiving into your life, and without receiving him into your life by faith, there's no spiritual nutrition. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clear in communicating that to others. Don't be satisfied because they nod and say, yeah, that, yeah, that's true. As I say that, I'm reminded of a time I was there in the cafeteria at the college and saw one of my roommates and came by and stopped with him. And um, they were talking about spiritual things and I was nodding along. The fellow sitting across the table from my friend after a while of kind of conversation going like that, he said, I've seen you nodding your agreement, but um, can I, would you mind if I just ask you a rather personal and direct question? Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, at that point, I had no trust in Christ. And so I said, yes, I do know him as my Savior. He said, great. I just wanted to make sure and not take for granted your, your nods as somehow and, 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 and leave you thinking that you were truly following Christ when it was just intellectual assent. Something like that were his words. By the way, if you do that to a true believer, they're never offended. To me, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Now, the unbeliever, how dare you? How dare you ask such a question? Um, don't be satisfied with intellectual assent. Don't be dissatisfied with the label. And may I say to those of us who are parents and those of us who are reaching out to friends and such, understand we're talking about following Christ, not intellectual agreement. On the flip side, what we're offering 
is true freedom, eternal freedom, the breaking of the bonds of the worst taskmaster in history, sin, and liberty into the bondage of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the bonds of humanity, that he might take upon himself the guilt of humanity, that he might liberate eternally those who trust in him. Father, I pray that each one here would know Christ as Savior. Father, we pray for those in our hearts to know Christ as Savior. And we so gratefully thank you for liberating us from bondage, for bringing light into our darkness, bringing life into our dullness and death. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.